Well, it is certainly a wonderful Sunday to come and worship together, worship our Savior. We get to look at the story of Christmas this morning. Over the last few years, we have looked at this Christmas event in a variety of ways. A few years ago, we looked at the theology, Christology, uh, behind the person of Christ, that he is the image of the invisible God, that he, in him, dwells all the fullness of deity. He is indeed fully God and fully man, truly God and truly man. For the last couple of years, we have also looked at the prophecies of the coming of Christ. We looked at Isaiah chapter 9 and Micah chapter 5, seeing the Old Testament prophesy of the Son who will be born, the Savior who will come. So I thought it would be appropriate this year to actually look at the event itself and to see how that unfolds. Join me in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. I'm going to be starting in verses, verse 26, reading through verse 38. My prayer is that we'd be humbled by this. It's a story we know, but that we'd be humbled by this, perhaps even see it through fresh eyes this morning. Start in verse 26, read the text with me. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who is called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word, And the angel departed from her. Again, a familiar story for all of us. Yet for Mary, this is shocking. Let's unfold the story, start in scene number one. Scene number one, it's a drama that plays out. The silence is broken. The silence is broken. Verse 26, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. So understand the timing of what's going on here. For over 400 years, God has been silent. There has been no prophet sent by God. There has been no miracle performed by God. There has been no visible sign of God's presence 
In fact, one of the last visions that was given to Ezekiel regarding God's presence with Israel was a vision of the glory of Yahweh standing over the temple and then leaving, departing, a sign that God, because of the disobedience of his people, God has, had left his people. And thus 400 years of silence begins. God's revelation had grown quiet. The silence, though, from God is not new for Israel. When Israel was held captive in Egypt, again, for hundreds of years, there was no prophet, there was no message, there was no word from the Lord. When Israel rejected God and did what was right in their own eyes, God sent judges to rescue his people. No prophet was sent. No words came from heaven. It's now here again, God's voice had become still. On the surface, it seems hopeless. There's a Gentile Roman ruler that's ruling God's chosen people. If you look in Jerusalem, the throne is sitting empty. But God was readying himself, just like he did in the past. God was readying himself to deliver his people, to send the necessary liberator, deliverer, rescuer. In Exodus, God sent Moses to liberate his people from Egyptian captivity. In 1 Samuel, God sent Samuel to speak on his behalf. But here, God breaks his silence as never before. He does it in the most spectacular of ways. He doesn't send a prophet. He doesn't send a man. He sends an angel. Specifically here, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. Gabriel is one of two angels that are actually named in the scriptures. It's one of two. The other angel is Michael. He's the archangel. He's the chief military angel, strength and power and might. Gabriel, though, is different. Gabriel is God's messenger, supreme messenger. When Gabriel is sent, he announces great and glorious truths from heaven. In Daniel 9, Gabriel is sent to announce the unfolding of human history to Daniel. Even earlier in this book, Gabriel is the one who announces to Zechariah and Elizabeth that John the Baptist would be born, the forerunner to the Messiah. And so once again, Gabriel is sent here, the great communicator of divine truth. God breaks his silence in the most spectacular of ways. But not only that, God breaks his silence in the most unexpected of places. Again, all of this is shocking. We're accustomed to it. It's familiar to us. But in verse 26, we read the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee. Not only any city, but the city called Nazareth. This was not how God's people expected heaven's silence to end. Especially if one was going to announce the coming king. 
God would break his silence in Jerusalem, right? That makes sense. The seat of temple authority. He'd come to the Sanhedrin, the judicial ruling body of the Jews. But that's not how God chooses to work on this day, at this moment. God bypasses the self-righteous Sanhedrin, the self-sufficient Pharisees and scribes. He sends Gabriel 80 miles north of Jerusalem. It's a few days' journey by foot, specifically to a despised town of Nazareth. It's a town unmentioned by name in the Old Testament. It's unnamed in the Apocrypha, those are the writings during those 400 silent years, unnamed, unnamed in the writings of that famous historian Josephus. It's a small town, 1,500, mostly Gentiles. It was known to house a Roman military camp where all manner of sin and corruption were found. In fact, so lowly was Nazareth that not even other Gentiles, or other Galileans rather, Galileans looked, they looked down upon that town. Think of Nathaniel, he was from Cana, another Galilean town. What does he say? He says, can anything good come out of where? Anything good come out of Nazareth? Right, uh, common vernacular. That's a crazy place. Don't go visit there. The words of the Jews of the day, they had a saying that went like this, if a man would be rich, let him go to Galilee, Nazareth. But if he would be wise, let him go to Jerusalem. Nazareth in the region of Galilee was not the center of Jewish culture or religion. It was, despi it was a despised place. But in the wisdom of God, it's the perfect place, perfect place for his son. It's the perfect city. Why? Because Christ would be the one who would be despised and forsaken of men. Let's add to this, God also broke his silence to the most unassuming of people, the most unassuming of people comes to a virgin, verse 27, engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. Of the descendants of David, the virgin's name was Mary. We don't know too much about Mary throughout the Bible. Luke gives us some insight here. She was a virgin. Her chaste state is being emphasized. She's called virgin two times in the verse. We'll look at that in a moment. She's a poor woman, low estate, we're told that she was engaged here, betrothed, to a man whose name was Joseph. It's the first stage of Jewish marriage. It's kind of like engagement, but it's much more of a commitment. In fact, betrothal was legally binding. Could be dissolved only by a bill of divorce, so not married yet, but committed legally. Luke tells us that Mary was betrothed to Joseph, who was an ordinary carpenter. In fact, drop down to verse 48. Mary describes herself in this way, verse 48. One who had a humble state. Humble state. It's referring to her low social position. Again, she's poor. 
She doesn't have much to her name. And that's confirmed later in chapter 2 when Mary and Joseph go to the temple to offer that sacrifice for Jesus. They don't offer a lamb. They offer a pair of pigeons. That's a concession that God made back in Leviticus 12. God made a concession for these pigeons, for the poor. They were unable to purchase a lamb. So by the world's standards, Mary was a meager, insignificant woman. She's unknown to to many, to most. She lived in a rural, despised town. She was looked down upon by the elite of the land. And yet this was God's choice for Jesus' earthly family. This is the one with whom he would break his silence. This is a picture, isn't it? A picture of God's grace. This is how God's grace works. Gabriel announces the glorious redemption of God, not to the mightiest of men, but to the lowliest of people. 1 Corinthians chapter one, what does that say? It's the weak, it's the weak that confound the strong. So what takes place with the gospel. It's the foolish that confound the wise. We see it here from the very start. Look at verse 28, coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Gabriel enters Mary's home Most likely, Mary's about 12 or 13 years old, the common betrothal age during that time. Now remember, again, the shocking nature of all this. Mary had never seen an angel before. And mark it, this is not the precious moments, pudgy angel that we think of, okay? I mean, that would be one thing. I'd still be frightened. I mean, imagine that. But this is a frightening being, supernatural, strong. And this angel comes and speaks. God had been silent since her great, 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 possibly beyond that grandparents lived. Now this angel stands and he says greetings. It's just simple, hello, Then he calls her favored one. That's from the Greek word that means grace, graced one. You've been graced by God. You've been specially chosen by God. It has nothing to do with you, Mary. All of this is undeserved. All of this is unearned blessing. In fact, by calling Mary graced one, Gabriel's indicating that she was a sinner who needs grace, a sinner in need of the salvation that this promised son would bring. Look down to verse 46. This is Mary's song that she sings after. Verse 46, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my who? My savior. I'm in need of God's grace. I need the son to be born to save me from my sins. She knew Psalm 51.5, that she was conceived as a sinner. She knew Psalm 58.3, that she was estranged from God from her birth. 
She knew Isaiah 64, all I can offer God are filthy rags of goodness. She knew she needed forgiveness and redemption from sin. She knew that there was nothing in her that caused God to choose her for this moment. She was not full of grace. She was the recipient of grace. And again, this is a picture. Gabriel begins this conversation by telling her that she's been graced by God, a paradigm for all whom God will save. Picture of Ephesians 2. By grace you have been saved through faith. Has nothing to do with you, any goodness, any earning. It's all unmerited, demerited favor. So silence is broken then in the most spectacular of ways, in the most unexpected of places, and to the most unassuming of people. Which is why verse 29, she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. This is curiosity and wonder. There's concern. All of that is filling Mary's mind. The word pondering there, kept pondering, imperfect tense. She's mulling the angel's words around in her mind. She's trying to make sense of all of this. Now she was thinking over Gabriel's words, there's fear now. Anxiety that's welling up inside of her. It makes sense. An angel standing in her midst. And we get scared at some of the silliest things, right? Spiders. It's a fierce angel. And so Gabriel says, everything is so understated. Verse 30 do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Stop being afraid, Mary. Why? Again, going back to God's grace, you have found favor with God. Again, this is grace charis. You're being blessed out of the good pleasure of your God. You're receiving divine favor from Yahweh himself. I have not come to punish you. I've come to announce blessing upon you. Scene number one, the silence is broken. Leads to scene number two, the seed is promised. The seed is promised. Gabriel continues, and behold, be amazed. Be amazed at the message I'm bringing. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name him Jesus. Again, understand the history now. For the last 4,000 years, Israel has waited for a promised seed. 400 years of silence, 4,000 years now. Hope dates back to Genesis 3. Yahweh's promise that a seed of a woman would come one day and destroy the serpent defeat Satan and sin and reverse the curse God had pronounced upon mankind. It's the first gospel. Genesis chapter three. You have Adam and Eve turn on their creator, 
reject God's word, God in his holiness pronounces cursing. Genesis 3.15, and I, Yahweh speaking to Satan now, the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Then notice he, a coming seed, shall bruise you on the head. The promised seed will one day deliver a death blow to your existence. This coming seed will save a people from your grip, the grip of sin. This is the foundation of hope. But every time, every time the people thought that the promised seed had come, every time their hopes were quickly dashed. In Genesis 4, on the heels of that great promise, Eve gives birth to a son. She's filled with joy. Yes, now, now, just a short time later, that promise is going to be fulfilled. She says joyfully, I have begotten a man-child, a seed with the help of the Lord. She thinks the Satan-defeating seed has arrived. Yet rather than defeating Satan and sin, this child Cain is overcome by sin and kills his brother Abel. And thus the enmity between the two seeds, that enmity has begun. Fast forward to the birth of Noah. Noah's born. What does his father say? This one will give rest from our work. This one will be the seed that overturns the curse He'll give us rest from the toil of our hands. The toil arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. The curse reversing hope is Noah. He'll do it. He's the seed. And yet in chapter 9, we see Noah fall into sin. Fast forward to Abraham. Maybe Abraham's the seed. You know, what's the first thing Abraham does after being given the great Abrahamic covenant by God? What's the first thing that he does? He doesn't defeat Satan. He becomes like Satan. And he lies about his wife. Just like the father of lies. He fails to trust God's faithfulness, fails to keep God's word. It goes back to Genesis 3 and the temptation. Let's fast forward to David then, right? Maybe David is the seed promised. After all, he's a man after God's own heart. He's the one specifically chosen to be king over Israel. But what do we see in David? Rather than overturning the curse, he travels down the same road of sin as Adam and Eve. I want you to listen to how David's sin is described and hear the echoes to what God says in Genesis 2. Hear the echoes of what takes place with Eve being tempted by Satan. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house and from the roof he 
saw a woman bathing, just like Eve saw that the tree was good. And he saw that the woman was very beautiful in appearance, just as Eve saw that the fruit was a delight to the eyes. David sent messengers and what? Took her, just as Eve took the fruit. What's taking place with David now? It's not a reversal of the curse. It's now a repetition of the sin David would not be the serpent-crushing seed promised. He failed here just like his first parents failed. Same way, same sins, same wording. This is what takes place over and over again for thousands of years. The hope of the promised seed is always dashed. Every child Israel thought would bring that needed redemption, every seed failed. Failure after failure, yet the promise remained through all of these years. Years a seed would come, a son would be given, a child would be born. Isaiah 9, for a child will be born. A son will be given. Though there's been failure and sin, a child is coming. Isaiah 11, a shoot, a descendant, will spring from the stem of Jesse. Micah 5, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. There is a seed that is coming, though there's been disobedience throughout. God will be faithful. Genesis 12, in you, from your seed, your lineage, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And now here comes Gabriel, who makes it clear that the history of dashed hopes and failed seeds is finally over. The promised seed, the one Israel has been waiting for, is about to be conceived in Mary's womb. Verse 31, he will be named Jesus. He will be Savior. Hebrew Yeshua, the Lord is salvation. Yahweh saves. This child is destined by God to be a Savior, not just any Savior, a better Savior, not like Moses the Savior who freed Israel from political oppression, but the greater Savior, the greater Moses, a Savior from sin's chains. We read it earlier. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save, deliver, rescue, liberate his people from their sins. The greatest Savior. Sets Jesus apart from every other seed, Though every other seed caved into sin, this seed would be different. He would conquer sin. Not only conquer it for himself, being sinless, but he would conquer sin for others. His name is Jesus. Notice also what Gabriel says, verse 32. He'll be a savior. He will also be God incarnate, Yahweh 
in human flesh. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And notice that term great, that depiction of this child. The term great is a reference to Jesus' nature, his divine Yahweh, eternal nature. Why do I say that? Because in the Old Testament, when that adjective great is used by itself, when it's not qualified by anything else, it refers to only one individual, only one, and that's God himself. Psalm 48, one, great is the Lord. Psalm 86, 10, for you are great. You alone are God. Psalm 96, four, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Gabriel is announcing Jesus' deity here. He will be great like Yahweh in the Old Testament. And that's confirmed by Gabriel's next statement in verse 32. He will be called the son of the most high. And that title in the verse is emphatic. Most high is a reference to Yahweh. It's a title that emphasizes God's supreme authority. No one is higher. No one is more significant. No one is greater no one is more powerful or exalted. Couple that with the phrase son of, that indicates that Jesus would possess that same essence, that same nature, that same equality. We've seen this through John's gospel. To be the son of the most high does not imply any inferiority to God in nature. Rather, son of God describes one who possesses the very nature as God. That's why the religious leaders hated Jesus calling himself the son of God. What do they say in John chapter five? We wanna kill you, we wanna stone you because you're calling God your father, making yourself equal with God. There's no inferiority of nature here. This is an exaltation of nature. These are echoes now of Isaiah 9. Those promises of that seed. Isaiah 9, 6, for a child will be born to us, a son. The son of God, a son will be given. And then this statement, his name will be called mighty God. That's his name, that's his nature. In Micah 5, we see the same thing. For as for you, Bethlehem, from you, one of your own, from you, one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. This is the seed. But then Micah adds this, his goings forth are from long ago. Well, how long ago? Maybe, maybe created, maybe created at some point in time. No, from the days of eternity, this coming seed will be the eternal one. It's an amazing announcement. 
And put it in the context, Israel has remained disobedient to Yahweh. But God here remains faithful to his word. He will fulfill what he promised centuries ago. He'll be a savior. He'll be deity. He'll also be a king. It's the third promise here Gabriel gives. His divine son would be the promised messianic king, verse 32. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. It's another description of deity. His kingdom will have no end. Seed here will fulfill Genesis 49. Coming seed that will have a scepter. The scepter shall not depart from Judah and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is the messianic seed, the coming king. This is the one the psalmist looks forward to. Psalm 2, 6, I have installed my king upon Zion. The king is coming. It's connecting all of this to Isaiah 9. The government will rest on his shoulders. He'll be the ruler and the Messiah King. So Gabriel says here, Jesus was sent not only as a savior, but also as a sovereign, not only to redeem, but also to reign. And I hope you're seeing the echoes of Old Testament promises. Again, this is why it's so shocking. There's more echoes. Think of these three significant words here that Gabriel uses, throne, house, kingdom. Throne, house, kingdom. You can also add forever, a fourth, forever. These are echoes of the Davidic covenant and that promise that Israel is waiting for. Listen to 2 Samuel 7. God makes a covenant to David thousands of years earlier. Here it is, your house And your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. You hear that in Gabriel's words. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign. His kingdom will have no end. It will be forever. Gabriel is saying the beginning stages of this covenant, this promise, are now starting to begin. God has not forgotten his promises, though over a thousand years have passed since that promise was made. He does not forget his promises for his people. This son who's announced will one day sit on the messianic throne. Again, he will reign over the house of Jacob. Gabriel says his kingdom will never end. Points to the culmination of redemptive history. So Gabriel comes to Mary and says, stop being afraid. Stop being afraid. If I wanted to take you out, I would have done it already. This is now blessing upon blessing. God is gracious. He is faithful. You will bear his divine son, the promised seed, 
will not only be the much-needed savior, he is also going to be the long-awaited king. Which leads into scene number three, the spirit is active. Scene number three, the spirit is active. Because if Jesus is going to be God's son, conceived in a virgin's womb, and I think we can all agree, the normal biological process of his conception must be different, right? Must be different. That's why Mary asks, how can this be? How can this be since I am a virgin? She's puzzled. She understands normal biology. So Gabriel explains. Verse 35, the Holy Spirit. Each member of the Trinity is involved with the coming of Jesus. The Father sends his Son. Christ comes. The Spirit here is at work, creates. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So not only does the announcement of this child bring Mary's mind back to the promise in Genesis 3, the first gospel, not only does this bring Mary's mind back to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, but Gabriel's words now brings Mary's mind back to the opening two verses of Genesis 1. When God creates the universe out of nothing, and how does he do it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the spirit of God was moving, hovering over the surface of the waters. Moving over, even overshadowing. Same idea of what Gabriel says. The same creator who brought life out of nothing is the one who had placed this child in the virgin's womb and work that miracle. Absolutely necessary because this child has to be both fully divine and fully human, truly God, truly man. Both united here in the incarnate Christ. This is the hypostatic union, theological term, theological Christmas term, hypostatic union. It's the glory of God's omnipotence, his power. He does the impossible. It shows just how lost we were, how fallen we were, are. We necessitated a work similar to the creation of the universe to save us. In fact, this is why Gabriel later says, notice verse 37, for nothing, nothing will be impossible with God. From a human perspective, the impossible will take place. A virgin will conceive a son. That's unheard of. That's absurd. And if we doubt this, just remember who wrote the book. It was Luke. He was a doctor. He was a doctor. This is expert testimony. I think if Luke knew or thought that Jesus had two human parents, he would have recorded that. But instead, he records the ridiculous. This is the bizarre. 
That's why Gabriel reiterates verse 35, the holy, again, this is now deity, holiness, attribute of God, the holy child, not just any child, the holy child shall be called the son of God, the eternal son. Through the miracle of the virgin conception would take upon himself true and complete humanity, no sin, without diminishing his essential deity. It's quite a way for God to end 400 years of silence. Gabriel comes to this poor girl. She, he announces Mary's child's mission. He will be the savior. Her child's identity. He will share the same nature as God and her child's destiny. He will rule as messianic king forever. All through the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is active. Let's finish with the final scene here, scene number four. Scene number four. The sign is given. The sign is given. I mean, put yourself in Mary's shoes here. Once Gabriel leaves, what is the question that you are going to ask yourself? Did that just happen? Did I hear it correctly? Have, am I the one chosen to raise the Messiah? We just celebrated uh, my youngest daughter's birthday uh, a couple days ago. And Sarah and I were thinking through just the birth of our kids and how inadequate we felt, right? Parents, how inadequate you feel when, when your first child is born, right? Like you're in the hospital and birth, you, uh, the, the wife gives birth and the child is given, right? And, and, and you're taking care of the child and then all of a sudden they do the crazy thing. They say, now you get to go home and take care of this child by yourself. Like, do you know who we are? We can't do this. Oh, we're calling the hospital. When are you coming by? When are you coming to check on us? It's just inadequate. Here, here's Mary. Is, has this happened? I'm so inadequate for this. How in the world is this going to happen? How am I going to do this? She's 12 or 13 years old. So verse 36. Gabriel says, Behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. This is the lesser miracle confirming the greater miracle. She's conceived and she who is called barren is now in her sixth month. So God's omnipotent power in Mary's cousin would be the confirmation of his miraculous work that was just announced to her. You heard it correctly. And yes, you are inadequate, but I will take care of my son. We see it, don't we? We see the father taking care of the son uh, during the birth, immediately after the birth, throughout those years. That's why God didn't announce this grand truth to Mary until the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy when her pregnancy would be clearly evidence. Again, this is a lesser miracle confirming the greater miracle. And so Mary in humility and in submission, what does she say? Verse 38, 
Behold the bond slave, the slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. No matter the disgrace, no matter the slander, the ill repute, which she will experience, despite the possible consequences, perhaps losing her relationship with Joseph, which almost happens, the possibility of even death, since unfaithfulness during betrothal period could be punished by stoning. No matter the cost, Mary beautifully bows in submission to God, her Savior. It's another picture of the gospel, isn't it? This is a picture of saving faith. When we come to Christ in saving faith, we confess Jesus as Lord and ourselves as his slave. We bow in submission to him. And as we know, as this extraordinary drama plays out, everything Gabriel promised did indeed come to fulfillment. The divine son was given. The promised seed was born. Satan did defeat sin and Satan. That is why we celebrate Christmas because the one who would forgive us of our sins, he was victorious. He did crush the serpent on the head. And so we worship him gladly, but we also wait, don't we? Because there's that one promise that Gabriel offers that has not come to fulfillment just yet. What is it? He will rule on the throne forever, the Davidic throne, and that is what we wait for. And we're gonna look at that next week. Father, it is a tremendous time of year that we are able to worship you, your faithfulness, your omnipotence, your grace. I pray that we would be filled with humility before you recognizing ourselves as those who are recipients of grace, demerited favor, that we would be filled with a joy that our Savior has come and is coming. It'd fill us with an expectancy oh, that there is a hope hope that is forever that we will experience if we come to you through Christ in faith. Father, cause us to be joyful Christians. Joyful because our Savior was born, he lived, he died, he resurrected from the grave and he will come in great power and glory. May we rejoice in your gospel. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.